Acts 24, in our continuing study of the, of the book of Acts. As you're turning there, I want to mention, of course, that uh, as we said last week, dealing with the study of the last eight or so chapters that are devoted to the ministry of the Apostle Paul, especially as Paul is now uh, done with his uh, missionary journeys, uh, not so much that he's done with missionary journeys, because he certainly continues to be a missionary in Jerusalem, but the travels throughout the known world of that time. Uh, now, what is our purpose? Why are we focusing so much attention? Well, first of all, because uh, these narratives are given to us by, by Luke uh, in the book of Acts for the reason of knowing, first of all, the history of, of the church and what the church went through in its, in its earliest stages. But it's also something that we, we cannot deny that within the pages of the book of Acts, there, there are a lot of uh, spiritual truths and applications that, that we need to take hold of and apply them, really, to our lives as, as Christians. What the church endured then, we as a church endure today. In many cases, not maybe not to the to, to the uh, extent that they went through then, uh, certainly. But uh, there is in the body of Christ, not just in the United States, but really worldwide, uh, those same kinds of persecutions, those same kinds of attacks upon the church, and and yet what we see in in, in the Book of Acts is is really the work of the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ, and so. If the Holy Spirit is really at the, at the center of what's taking place in the church, uh, we should know because the Holy Spirit is still in the center of, of, his, uh, of his church and His people today. So these things certainly apply. And, and it's also, I think, an important uh, aspect uh, concerning discipline and discipleship that uh, we pay attention to every word that God gives us, whether it's a story that you know involves... Uh, Paul going through the, the, the trials and the tribulations that he's going through. Uh, every word of God, of God's word, is necessary and important for us to know. So I, I just want to begin with that, because here we find Paul now, having been taken from Jerusalem after being nearly beaten to death, and uh, then taken and almost beaten by the Romans, and then put into a, uh, into a mock trial before the Sanhedrin, and now he's being taken all the way to Caesarea, some 65 miles away from Jerusalem. And now he will stand before the Roman governor of that region, uh, Felix. And so we're just following through with the life of Paul here. Verse 1 says, Now after five days Ananias the high priest came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear, by your courtesy, a few words from us. For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, <clears throat> and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. 
He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. Shall we pray? Father, we ask for the anointing and the blessing of your Holy Spirit as we study your word this morning. Lord, may your light truly shine, not only from the pages of of your word, but shine directly into our hearts and into our minds. May there be, Lord God, great gems and jewels of your truth to stir our hearts, to encourage us, Lord God, to live in a manner that is worthy of your calling. And may we, Lord God, be granted your wisdom and understanding now. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm sure you've all heard the expression, all roads lead to Rome. And while that may have been true for most of the ancient world during the time of the Roman Empire and even beyond, there happened to have been an alternative transportation system which required only one road. Whereas the Roman roads had names such as the Via Cassia, the Via Salaria, and the Via Appia, or as we would say in English, the Cassian Way, the Salarian Way, or the Appian Way, the Christians spoke about a single road, or a single way to heaven, in echoing their very Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said, I am the way. To hear that was to know that he was saying, I am the only road to heaven. I'm the only road to the Father. I'm the only road to eternal life. The Bible speaks of two prominent roads. And Jesus himself talked about them. He talked about the one road that was the broad road or the broad way that leads to destruction. And many there be who who are on it. But he also said, but there's another way. It's the narrow road. And that narrow road leads to life. And few find it. Christians have been called the way. Because they were on the road to heaven. But they were called the way. For they spoke of Jesus as that way to eternal life. And we've seen a few times in our study of the book of Acts how Christians were called the way. Acts 9, let me bring these things to your reminder. Acts 9 verses 1 and 2. When Saul being, of course, Saul of Tarsus who would later become to be called the the Apostle Paul... Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Later on in Acts 19, verse 9, when Paul was in Ephesus, 
And they're wanting to present the gospel to, of Jesus Christ to the Jews in the synagogues and whatnot. In verse 9 it says, But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Later on in the same chapter, in verse 23, it says, About that time there arose a great commotion about the way. And then, of course, just a couple of weeks ago in Acts 22, verse 4, Paul, in giving his testimony, said, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. Let's be reminded today that we are of the way. And as Christians, we need to know the way. The reason why we know the way, because we are on the way. And may I say to you, we're on the way not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And what He did in shedding His blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And what He did in rising from the dead on the third day after His death. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the truth that Jesus came to testify of. And we are of this way. Twice in our study of chapter 24, we will encounter this label. Once in Paul's defense against his accusers and again in his private meeting with Felix. And as Paul is eventually on his way to Rome... He's given the opportunity to give directions to others of the way to eternal life with God. And it begs the question this morning for each and every one of us here, it begs the question, which way are you going into eternity? Which way are you going into eternity? Because you see, there is eternity for every one of us here. It isn't just eternity for the Christian. There is an eternity with Christ, in Christ, but there is also an eternity apart from Christ. Which way are you going? We hope and pray that you will find the way to eternal life through Jesus Christ. That's our desire. Well, we come now to the Apostle Paul once again, and, and, and we realize the resilience of the Apostle Paul is an amazing, is an amazing thing. How Paul makes it through everything that he goes through. Everywhere that he goes. To proclaim the gospel of Jesus. But just in our recent studies, he's almost torn apart limb from limb twice by the Jews in Jerusalem and narrowly escaped the Roman lashing before announcing his Roman citizenship. But by the providence of Almighty God, he survived then after that an assassination plot and was moved from Jerusalem to Caesarea. And now the apostle was about to face his accusers before Governor Felix as the Romans were still trying to ascertain what he had done to cause such riots. Well, for Paul, he will certainly face imprisonment and he will face interrogation. And this is where we find him in chapter 24. I read this earlier and throughout the, re, throughout the narratives I'll comment briefly on, on every verse or as many verses as, as, as need be. But the story itself is quite clear and quite plain as, as Luke has, has given us a, a, an account of it. Now after five days and the days that are numbered here are, are, are quite important to Paul's defense. 
It says, after five days, Ananias the high priest came down with the elders in a certain orator named Tertullus. Now this orator was a public speaker and really was the attorney representing the high priests in the Sanhedrin. Because of his name, he was probably a Hellenistic Jew, which means that he was a foreign Jew, not of Jerusalem or of Judah. But he came primarily to speak and to flatter, and as we'll see in just a moment. Uh, it says these gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation saying, Seeing that through you, speaking to Felix, seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. I mean, this guy is really dishing it out here, you know. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I, I beg you to hear. By your courtesy, a few words from us. For we have found this man a plague. I like what the King James Version says, a pestilent fellow. A creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the whole world, really is what he's saying. <laughs> and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to the law. But the commander Lysias came by and with great violence, by the way, that's stretching the truth a whole lot, isn't it? With great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. You would think that he was saying that the Jews were treated with violence for taking Paul. We know the story. The Romans came primarily to save Paul from their attacks without inflicting any violence upon the others. Verse 8, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. And so they were saying, oh yes, that's exactly what happened. And we, we get a great picture of the thoughts and intents of the high priest and the elders as they're described as descending there in verse 1. After five days, Ananias the high priest came down with the elders. Uh, literally, it's descending. Of course, you always descended from Jerusalem anywhere you went. Jerusalem was the high city uh, above everything. And so north, south, east, or west, if you went down from Jerusalem in any direction, you still went down. It wasn't going just south. When you go to Jerusalem from any direction, you always went up, up to Jerusalem. But, but there's something different that, uh, that, that, that is pictured here. These, these elders and, these, uh, and, and the high priest and all were descending, it says. The high priest descended with the elders, picturing a flock of vultures descending on their prey, who was the Apostle Paul. Well, that uh, just reminds me of one great thought, and that is that it's good to know that the Lord is on our side when facing accusers that the enemy of our souls barrages us constantly with. If we are believers in Jesus Christ, God is going to be on our side. If He be for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? The important thing is, are you on God's side? Paul obviously was. Paul was one that, uh, that uh, God had chosen for this very calling. But God has to be on our side because of the tactics of the enemy, the tactics of the world. Listen, how do you combat flattery towards a judge without God's help? 
That's what Paul was facing. How do you combat that flattery that this guy, I mean, this guy was really just pouring it thick. I mean, the, you know, the high priest in the Sanhedrin hired this guy, Tertullus, to flatter the governor in his opening remarks. He says, seeing that you through, uh, through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. I mean, you might as well go ahead and give that guy, if they could have back then, the Nobel Peace Prize. Might as well. Yasser Arafat got it. And others. You'd have thought that Felix was a paragon of virtue. Some great peacemaker and generous supporter of the Jewish nation. The Prince of Peace himself. Of course, these were all lies. They were all lies. You know what Felix was known for in history? Felix was known for his cruelty. He was known for his treachery. But, you see, some people aren't interested in the truth. And people will tell you, please don't confuse things with the facts. Please don't confuse me with the truth. They're said in what they want to believe. They're not interested in the truth, only in securing what they want. In this case, the high priests and the elders wanted a conviction against Paul. And Paul was accused of three things. Not to mention that he was labeled by Tertullus as a pestilent fellow, a plague. What can we do with plagues but get rid of them? Well, he was accused of three things. They all begin with a letter S so that you can remember them. He was accused of sedition, of sectarianism, and of sacrilege. He was accused of sedition, <clears throat> which means that he was accused of creating dissension among the Jews against the government. Now, this was a violation of Roman law. So, sedition was a violation of Roman law, creating dissension. And as they saw it, against the government, against the Romans. So it was a violation of Roman law. Secondly, he was accused of sectarianism. In other words, belonging to an unlawful religious sect of the Nazarenes, as they put it from the Jewish perspective, which means that this was a violation of their Jewish law. Because the word sect literally means heresy. So they were accusing Paul of leading a band of heretics against their Jewish beliefs. But then he's accused of sacrilege, which was profaning the temple, and so they would say, well, this was a violation of God's law. So Paul was accused of violating Roman law, Jewish law, God's law. This was their argument. Now Luke goes to great lengths in the book of Acts to, to, to point out that, that such charges were false. Paul did not stir up the insurrection at the temple. We know that Paul went there to do one thing. He went there to worship the Lord. Paul did not cause the riots that took place there in the temple courts. So these were inflammatory charges designed to provoke a passionate rather than a reasoned response. You see, you have a reasoned response if you come with Proof, evidence, 
They didn't have evidence. They just had their flowery words. And Felix taking the charges with a grain of salt. Now, this is about the only place where you can actually say that Felix was right. He, he took the charges with a grain of salt. Why? Because he knew Ananias. And knowing Ananias to be cut from the same evil and wicked cloth as himself, as we learned last week, Ananias being so greedy, a person who would take the, the tithes of the common priest in the temple and take them for himself and for his lavish lifestyle. Felix, knowing these things, would certainly measure things toward Paul based on whatever was an advantage to him. So he would just kind of listen to what's going on. And against all of this, Paul represented himself. Now we hear Paul's words in verse 10, or after the introduction here, then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Because you may ascertain that it is no more than twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And he's saying to Felix, do the math. Do the math, Felix. And figure these things out. Here's the proof from my uh, standpoint. No more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone or inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. Well, beyond the interrogations that were given upon Paul, Paul comes back with one thing, integrity. Integrity. And this is the lesson that we need to learn as believers in Jesus Christ. That there was only one thing that Paul could do and would do. Paul would tell the truth. He would tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help him God. He told the truth. Paul did not flatter Felix. He didn't come shoveling it out. He did not flatter him. He did not lie to Felix. And there's good reason. Because he knew that his outcome was in the governor's hand to a certain extent and in God's hands to the full extent. Now remember that we'll always have to face the world, the flesh, and the devil. So there is some sense that at times we may have to, a certain extent, consider our outcome in someone else's hands. But always as believers we know that God is in complete control. That God is so providential. Providential coming from a word that has to do with what God gives us and provides for us when we need it. And so Paul had to just stay simple and straightforward. And these are the lessons that we learn about Paul's heart in dealing with matters such as this, because in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, this is what he teaches us. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech, or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God? He could have as well said there, I didn't come to you with excellence of speech like Tertullus did when you came against me. 
He says, I didn't come this way declaring to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know, uh, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the whole matter of Paul. That's how we come with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the next letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, sneakiness, nor handling the Word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth. In other words, the full revelation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. When I come to you, when I go out from you, when I go out among others, I come to you straightforward and simply with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He doesn't come to please man, he comes to please God. With that in mind about the heart of Paul, Paul went to Jerusalem to worship, not to arouse people into a disturbance. He said that he had arrived in Jerusalem only 12 days earlier. Fest, uh, uh, I should say uh, Felix. We'll meet Festus later. But Felix knew three things from this. And he knew it because Paul had been arrested on the fifth day. or uh, it's, a, it's about, uh, I would say, the, between the fifth and the seventh day where, where Paul would, would have been arrested and then taken you know, the ne- in the next uh, day to uh, Caesarea, next couple of days to Caesarea, and then five days later, uh, would you know the high priest and, and, and his group would come to Caesarea. But uh, these are the three things that Felix would have ascertained. First of all, five days were not enough time for Paul to do what the Jews were saying. You know why? Because he spent those days, the, between five and seven days, in the temple doing what? Going through that purification ceremony, sponsoring those four men that the church had asked him to sponsor. So five days weren't enough, or even five to seven days weren't enough for Paul to do what the Jews were saying. He could not have planned and mobilized an insurrection that would arouse all the people, not in five days' time or seven days' time. Secondly, since all the events had happened within the 12-day period, Paul's account could be checked out thoroughly. So he says, if you need to check it out, go check it out. It was only 12 days. And thirdly, by mentioning the time frame and knowing that his account could be checked meant that Paul was probably being honest in what he said. So those are the three things that Felix knew. Now listen to the words of the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus as he writes to them about this very same kind of integrity. He says in verse 17 of Ephesus, uh, Ephesians 4, I should say, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Notice, who being past feeling, have given themselves... Over to lewdness. Lewdness, again, being dealing with, with sexual issues and sins. To work of all uncleanness with greediness. And then he says, but you have not so learned Christ. You have not learned Christ this way. Indeed, you have heard him. 
and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. And notice verse 22 very carefully. That you put off concerning your former conduct. The old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. That you put off concerning your former conduct. He says this is the way you used to be. You put that off. It's like taking an old stinky yucky garment off of your body and getting rid of it. He says, putting off your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Deceitful lusts. What are those? Well, they have to do with lying. And then he says in verse 23, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God and true righteousness and holiness. We were dealing with this this past Wednesday night in our study of the book of Jeremiah about righteousness and the very fact that when we put on Jesus Christ, we're putting on the righteousness of Christ. It's not our righteousness, it's Christ's righteousness. And then he says, therefore putting away lying, or therefore putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. So in dealing with, before Felix, this governor, he's, he says, I'm just going to tell you the truth. Now Proverbs 12, verse 19 is something just for us. The truthful lips shall be established forever. But a lying tongue is but for a moment. We want our tongues to be blessed by God forever. Well, that was the first charge that Paul dealt with. And the second charge... Uh, this is what Paul said in verse 14 as he deals with that second charge of um, um, the uh, sectarianism. He says, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, and again, the word sect being heresy, so I worship the God of my fathers, Believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept. That there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Now Paul confessed one thing here. Paul confessed a genuine worship for God, or a worship of God. Now, in fact, what Paul was admitting to was that, he, that, that that second charge was in fact true. He was a follower of the Nazarene. He was a follower of Jesus. And Paul said, in effect, that the way of the Nazarene, and there's that word way again, that the way of the Nazarene was, while it was heresy to the Jews, yet he worshipped the same God, the God of the fathers of Israel. And not a new God. It's not about you know changing gods here. He says the same God. Not only that, but Paul would tell them in verse 16 that he would not do anything to cause anyone to stumble. That was his rule of life. You see, when Paul said there in verse 16, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men, he says, I have a conscience that will not cause anyone to stumble. That's his rule of life. And folks, as believers in Jesus Christ, that needs to be our rule in life. That we're not doing anything to cause anyone to stumble. If people stumble, they stumble because of their own lies or their own ways of dealing with the truth. 
God called us to proclaim the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. By doing that, it is to cause people to come to Christ. But, it, but the, any stumbling that takes place is not because we've given them the truth. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 31 to 33, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense. Notice what he says. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. By the way, that little phrase there in verse 32, very important for us to understand. To give offense to the Jews, or not to give offense to the Jews, Greeks, or to the church of God. Paul makes three distinctions here. Now, from the very beginning of time, at, at least, you know, at, at that point where God now names a people, grows a people out uh, through Abraham, uh, Isaac, and then to Jacob, we know that there are Jews and there are Gentiles. There, there are two major distinctives so far. You're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. But a new distinctive comes when we come to Christ who died for both Jew and Gentile. And those who believe in Jesus now belong to the church of God. So there's a third distinction. So don't call yourself a Gentile. And no longer walk as a Gentile walked, as Paul had said earlier in Ephesians. What does he say now? He says, now you're the church of God. That is made up, by the way, of both Jew and Gentile. Very, that was free. It was free. It was not part of the whole study. It's just something you need to remember. And Paul goes on to say, Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. Now, don't get the misunderstanding that Paul is saying that he only wants to please men, because again, many times Paul has said, I do not do what I do to please men, but to please God. But in the, in the area of not pleasing, this is in context to the fact of not giving offense. Not causing offense, not causing anyone to stumble. It, it becomes even clearer in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9-11, through 11, when Paul says in this, I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment, that you may approve all the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense. What does that mean? Be genuine and without causing anyone to stumble. Till the day of Jesus Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Be filled with the fruits of righteousness. Let your love abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment. We as Christians are about the love of Christ. We are about the love of Christ and the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. We are about love and life in Christ. We are not like those who, if, they, if you don't agree with them, want to do harm to you. That's not Jesus. You don't believe in what we believe? Off with your head. That's a great religion, isn't it? No. We are about life. We are about the love of Christ and we are to abound more and more in the love of Christ and not cause offense. Which means not to cause anyone to stumble. If they stumble, they stumble because they have not accepted the truth.
As for the third charge of profaning the temple, this is what Paul goes on to say, verse 17. Now after many years I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with the mob nor with tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. Or or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. Unless it is for this one statement which I cried out, standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. So one of the main reasons that Paul had to go to Jerusalem, we knew this from early on in our, well, a lot earlier on than where we are now, but earlier on in, in the book of Acts, that Paul had collected a, a, an offering as he went through all the churches of Asia because he had mentioned to them the famine that the, the church was, was going through in Jerusalem and wanted to help them. So that was one of the main reasons that Paul had to go to Jerusalem was to bring alms to the poor there. So he was far then from being an insurrectionist. He was far then from being a one who would cause riots. He hadn't returned to incite the people to riot against the government, but to minister and to show mercy. And Paul related clearly what happened. He was unjustly attacked by those Asian Jews. In other words, he wasn't even attacked by the Jews who lived in Jerusalem. He was attacked by those who lived outside of Jerusalem, the foreign Jews, the Hellenistic Jews. In addition, Paul states that they attacked him while he was worshiping. And by the way, when he was worshiping in the temple, he did so respecting the Jewish laws and customs. He would have never taken a Gentile into an area where Gentiles were not welcome or were not allowed to go in. Because Paul respected the Jewish laws. And then he mentions that they weren't even in the court to accuse him of the charges. If they're going to charge me, with it, how come they're not here to charge me? And still, these here that are, that are accusing me of these things, why haven't they said what I've done wrong? And proved it. They couldn't. But it's at this point that Paul interjects now the, the gospel message. And he says there in verse 21, unless it is for this one statement which I cried out. And he says, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. Now when you dig deeper into the heart of the Apostle Paul, you realize one thing. That in his mention of this resurrection of the dead... It is about Jesus Christ. It is about His resurrection. It is about Him following the Nazarene who is alive and risen from the dead. Because the true issue and the point of contention was Paul's belief that Jesus Christ of Nazareth had risen from the dead and was the promised prophesied Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world. And those who accused him were, were, you know, those who accused him were looking for their Messiah, but they had rejected the claims of Christ. They had rejected the claims of his followers. And by the way, Paul had once been like them. Paul had been one of them who went out actively seeking to find Christians to persecute them. But believing in the resurrection of the dead was no crime at all. Why? Because even when he was before the Sanhedrin in the last chapter, he mentions the resurrection of the dead 
purposely so that the Pharisees who believed in the resurrection of the dead and the Sadducees in the same group would rise up against each other. To the point that even the Pharisee says, he's done nothing wrong. So Paul now stands before Felix. What have I done wrong in, in believing in the resurrection of the dead? That's part of what we believe. So the Jews were divided on the issue. So why am I being judged for that? But that's biblical Christianity, isn't it? We, we, you know, we cannot be Christians. We cannot call ourselves Christians and biblical Christians if we don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if we don't believe in the resurrection from the dead. We can't be. Now, I'm going, to, I'm going to say something very bold here today. Let, let, let me be bold and say that biblical Christianity, maybe I'm just saying this to wake you up. But let me be bold to say that biblical Christianity is not new and it was not founded by Jesus and his followers in the first century. Did you get it? I'm going to say it again, just in case you're kind of snoozing on me. I want to say something to wake you up. Biblical Christianity is not new and was not founded by Jesus and his followers in the first century. Now that last phrase is what should tell us what I'm saying. Biblical Christianity was founded by God himself in eternity past from the foundations of the world. Biblical Christianity was founded by God Himself in eternity past and it was explained in the Garden of Eden in response to man's sin. Genesis 3.15 God says, And I will put enmity. The word enmity literally means hostility. I will put hostility between you, speaking to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your seed, plural, and her seed, singular. You'll notice that here in the New King James Version, the word seed is capitalized. Speaking of the woman's seed. It is singular and is capitalized just to remind us that it's speaking of Messiah. It is speaking of Jesus. It is pointing to the coming of Messiah. And notice he says, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The heel of Christ was bruised on the cross. But God promised to send a Savior, you see. God promised to send a Savior. In effect, God would come Himself and be the substitute and sacrifice for the sin of the entire human race. And that promised seed, God's only begotten Son, would come through Israel. But the Jews of Jesus' time were trusting in their own self-righteousness to get them to heaven. And by the way, it wasn't just then that people trusted in their own self-righteousness. People trust in their own self-righteousness today. And even people who go to church and are in churches today think that by what they do in this life is what's going to get them into heaven. But that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not biblical Christianity. 
The Jews of Jesus' time said if they kept the law, they would earn eternal life. But we know that all fall short of the glory of God. That is not just Jew, but Gentile as well. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And we all need a Savior who would die as our substitute. And I'm glad to say that Jesus did. He died for you and He died for me. That if we believe, that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our hearts that He's risen from the dead, you shall be saved. You will be saved from the power of sin and death. You will be delivered from that which will keep you separated from God forever. And you'll come into the presence of God. And you'll walk in the way to heaven. And Jesus said, I am the way. Well, that leaves us with Felix. Verse 22 of our text says, But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way. Why does he have more accurate knowledge of the way? Because Paul told the truth. So when Felix had heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and he said, when Lysias the commander comes down, I will make a decision on your case. Now, here's where Felix reverts back to his stinkiness. He makes no decision. He just defers. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to, prov- to provide for or visit him. <laughs> what is that telling you? He's not letting Paul go. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now as he reasoned about, self, about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul. In other words, he was kind of waiting for a bribe. that he might release him. And therefore he sent for him more often and conversed with him. Well, you know, the more I bring him, maybe he's going to come and he'll have a little bit of cash. But after two years, after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix. And Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. Paul wins a case and he's kept in prison. Well, I suppose we can say in all fairness and based on the evidence of a notorious life that Felix was a scoundrel and a rat. I mean, just being fair, he was a scoundrel and he was a rat. And not only was he a cruel governor, but he also succeeded in being just like the Herods who married other men's wives right from under them by marrying Herod Agrippa's daughter Drusilla, who's mentioned here, who had actually been married to a Syrian prince but uh, left him for the rat. But now they're given an opportunity to turn their lives around by hearing Paul proclaim the gospel. 
And Paul made every, I mean, made the, the most of every opportunity that he had. See, Paul isn't crying, saying, oh my God, I'm in prison. I, I, I won the case. He's just there knowing, okay, God, you're in control. But every opportunity I have, I'm going to tell people about Jesus Christ. And this is what he does. He proclaims the gospel to Felix and his wife, Drusilla. But this Felix was a coward. He was a coward who compromised, not, not to stir up the Sanhedrin. He didn't want to you know, make waves with them. Instead of dismissing the case, he defers the case. And he kept Paul in custody to keep the peace. And Paul would have, would have to remain in house arrest for two more years. But he used the time wisely. He proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon would say of Paul's preaching, I love what he says. He says, we admire Paul's bold preaching directed right to the issues of Felix's life. Are there not some to be found who think the highest object of the minister is to attract the multitude and then to please them? Oh my God, how solemnly ought each of us to bewail our sin if we feel we have been guilty in this matter. What is it to have pleased men? Is there aught in it that we can make our head lie easy on the pillow of our death? Is there aught in it that can give us boldness in the day of judgment when we face thy tribunal, O judge of quick and dead? No, my brethren, we must always take our texts so that we may bear upon our hearers with all our might. That was the preaching of Paul. Paul, while, while Felix was a coward who, who did everything to please the Sanhedrin, Paul, when preaching the gospel, didn't waver a bit. Did you notice what the issues were that he spoke to Felix about? Righteousness? What else? Self-control and the judgment to come. In effect, he tells Felix, Felix, the Lord is your judge and he's going to come and judge you because you, you, you have no self-control in your life at all and you're doing things you know you ought not to be doing. But God wants you to be righteous. And what does it say? Felix was afraid? Felix was terrified by what he heard. Why? Because Paul was a committed preacher of the Word of God and of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And he said, judgment's near, Felix. Judgment is near. But Felix was inconvenienced by truth. Y'all heard of a book and a movie called An Inconvenient Truth? Brought an Academy Award to a former vice president who really has a thing about global warming. But if you ask the majority of, of honest scientists, it's, a, it's really not an inconvenient truth, it's a convenient lie. But this is not what it's all about. It just came to mind because, you know what? It was an inconvenient truth that made Felix say, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Do you know that there never was another time that we know of? There never was another time. 
So was it an inconvenient truth? Or was it a convenient lie? I believe this is what most people face when we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are we inconvenienced by the truth? Or do we just tell a convenient lie? Come back later. You see, the, pro- the problem with people today is that for them, there's always time. There's always time to come to church. Not today, but there'll always be time. I can tell you this. There isn't always time. People die. Things happen. Unexpected events take place. And this is the reason why the Apostle Paul himself would say in 2 Corinthians 6 verses 1 and 2, We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you. Notice, plead beseech, beg with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. And then he says, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now, not mañana. Mañana, mañana. We write songs about tomorrow. But the reality is we may not have a tomorrow. See? (laughs) Judgment comes. What are they going to say? Let that be a lesson to you. You need to run to Jesus right now, not tomorrow. Now is the day of salvation. Nowhere in the Bible does it talk about salvation as being something that is available tomorrow. It is now. Because one day it will be too late. The harvest is past. The summer is ended. And we are not saved. That's the chilling thought of having been presented the truth and say it's not convenient. Today is the day of salvation. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've never made a commitment to Christ, if you've never prayed to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you check your heart, only only you and God know that. But if you've never made that decision to follow Christ, Today's the day. Why? Because we have no assurance that we'll have a tomorrow that's more convenient. Let's pray.